Listening to the flip side with Noah Philippiak, connecting the reality of the gospel to the grid of life. You can support the podcast and pick up some sweet flip side swag at www.patreon.com slash Noah Philippiak. What is up, Flip Aponami? Welcome to episode 80 of the Flip Side Podcast. We are back with an encore episode with Greg Coles, who we interviewed in episode 79. If you missed that episode, make sure you go and check that one out, uh, probably before you listen uh, to this one. But uh, it was a, it was a great conversation about sexual ethics in the church. Greg is a single celibate gay Christian. He has a book called Single Gay Christian, which is very good and very inspirational, uh, even for someone like me who's straight about following Jesus and, and uh, what discipleship looks like. So highly, highly recommend that. But I'm in the middle of a sermon series for our church, and it's on God and sex, and we're navigating all these things. And we finished the interview last week, and then all these uh, questions just came, came back up, and I had more questions throughout the week, and Greg was gracious enough to come back on the show uh, for round two where we really get into some nitty-gritty and practical uh, questions. So encourage, I, I think it'll be a helpful helpful episode today. A uh, couple things just real quick. One, I want to give a shout-out to Angry Brew for uh, supporting the show. I'm twin-fisted today. I've got my Angry Brew. I've, I've, I'm definitely representing the Flipside swag. So I've got my flip upon my mug here. Uh, with my angry brew, and then in my my third favorite podcast is the Flipside Mug. I have my throat coat. I'm playing hurt today, a little under the weather, and so. Uh, but but so yeah. Anyway, if you hear me sounding like I need to, like I'm congested, it's because I am. Uh, yeah. So angry brew, go to angrybrew.com or fivelakes.com and use the promo code flip. And you'll get 10% off your order. So you can support them and the flip side uh, by doing that. So that's a big, a big shout out. Thank you to Angry Brew. Um, speaking of flip side swag, a couple of little changes we're making to the podcast here, which hopefully will make the podcast better. And I won't, I will not mention the changes every single time, but since they're new, I just got back from a podcast sabbatical. This is our second episode since then. Uh, one thing I'm going to be doing is, is, uh, doing some changes with Patreon. And our goal right now with Patreon is to get up to 20 patrons. And the reason for that is the biggest takeaway from my sabbatical is if we want to keep the flip side going, if you like the flip side, if you want to keep it on the air, uh, I need to hire a producer, a producer that will edit these episodes and do the social media. I just don't have the bandwidth to do that. Um, I'm a, you know doing more than full-time work planting a church and doing some other, you know, things in the nonprofit world relating to community development. And I love doing the podcast, but to make it sustainable, sustainable just meaning it can continue, that I'll have enough energy to do it and to stay within my own healthy limits and boundaries as a human and the amount of energy that I have to give, uh, I have to hire someone to do the editing, uh, the producing of the show. And so the only way for that to happen uh, is for our Patreon supporters to uh, go up. And so uh, I want to give a shout out to Eldon 
who joined as a patron since our last episode. We're now up to 13, and we need to get up to 20. Uh, you can give a, a small monthly gift, uh, as low as $3. Some people give up to $50 a month. You can give any amount you want. Uh, you'll get hooked up with some Flipside swag, such as uh, the mugs that I'm drinking from today. We're also going to uh, pull the email address from the show. We're not going to use mailbag anymore the way we've used it. We're going to make that another perk of Patreon. So if you want to uh, email the show, you're going to do that now by becoming a Patreon supporter. And then through the Patreon portal, you just go to patreon.com, you'll log in, and then you can send me questions that you have if you want to suggest topics. Uh, we'll do that all through the Patreon uh, portal. And as our patrons grow, we'll be able to do some more creative uh, creative things there with me throwing out some topics and uh, asking for questions for upcoming guests. You know, hey, I have this guest coming up. What questions do you guys have as Patreon supporters? So we'll, we'll want to make that more lively and active. I am working on a science fiction book right now, which I love, a uh, novel that I'm working on. And uh, I'm going to send out chapter one of the sci-fi uh, book to all my Patreon supporters, which which uh, which is a, uh, a sacred act. You know, when you're I've never written fiction before. I just started doing it as a hobby and I love it. I'm really enjoying it. But it feels like I've recorded, you know, a song in my garage on my you know electric guitar and i i think like i think this sounds okay but it actually sounds terrible you know but i you're afraid that like if i if, if i get actual uh feedback from anyone it might really hurt my feelings so i think i'm at a point where i i think this is good and i think it's entertaining and i believe in it enough that i will share it with my patreon supporters so if you're already a patreon supporter i'm gonna email that out to you via the patreon portal um here shortly and uh if you don't see it just check your your spam and promotions and make sure you're getting those all into your into your inbox so those are some of the changes we're making there will not be a noah's rant at the end of uh, flipside episodes anymore uh we will keep doing those as separate episodes and we'll have one of those coming up for you uh soon uh but yeah let's jump into this interview i'm trying to keep the episodes a little bit shorter as well i know uh it's hard to believe uh but that's another piece of feedback that I got from listeners, and I'm gonna do my best to do that. So, uh, Greg and I have a have a uh, a really really <clears throat> uh, good conversation, and uh, I hope you I hope it challenges you. A lot of it's just practical for me. How do I be a pastor of a church? Um, you know, and I, I won't I won't spill the beans on the on the interview, but uh, let me read you Greg's bio, and then we'll jump into this encore uh, interview uh, part two here with Greg Coles. Uh, Greg Coles, Gregory Coles, is the author of Single Gay Christian, InterVarsity Press, and No Longer Strangers, InterVarsity Press. He holds a Ph.D. in English from Penn State and lives in Idaho's Treasure Valley, where he works as a writer and speaker. Greg is a senior research fellow at the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender and curates most of his creative activities at GregoryColes.com. Let's bring Greg back on to the flip side. All right, we are back with Greg Coles for the encore interview. Greg, have you ever had an encore interview before where you just they had to have you back right away? I'm not sure I've ever had one this quickly. <laughs> I was thinking it's either. So if you liked last episode, this is the encore. 
if you didn't like last episode, this is the do over. This is like we get another shot to, you know, I, keep our listeners. I love both interpretations. You know, <laughs> I, I listened I listened to part of our conversation from last time and I was like, wow, we covered some ground. We did. Um, we did. <laughs> yes. There's episodes that I listen to sometimes for like technical things. I'm listening for set audio and other times I listen just to see how it's sounding. There's other episodes I, I don't listen to kind of like certain sermons. I'm like, I will never listen to that because I don't even know what I said and I don't want to rehear me say it, you know? So I don't think I'm going to re-listen to our episode because I'm like, whatever I said, I don't think I can, you know, so we'll see, we'll see how today goes. All we know is uh, we had fun in the moment. We had a lot of fun. It was, it was a good time. So, uh, hey, so the reason I'm having you back, thank you for coming back on. I, I mentioned this last episode, but obviously some listeners won't, won't have listened to both. Uh, but do listen to last uh, if if you missed it. I, I don't honestly don't even know what episode. I think this is episode 80 and that was episode 79, I think. Um, but um, I'm in a sermon series at my church right now and we're just calling it God and Sex. And we're doing four weeks on uh, God's design for sex. And we're I, I wrote a book called Beyond the Battle. So I, I do a lot of conversations about sex, but usually it's with straight men. And, uh, you know, we talk about God's design for sex. And it's really important that Christians understand that sex is a huge part of their discipleship. And the church doesn't talk about sex very often for many reasons. Uh, but then you have the, um, like, I, I, I think of Nate Collins' book title, All But Invisible, where he feels as a gay person, as a gay Christian, he's just invisible in the church. It's like, we don't even exist uh, we don't even exist in in you know in in a church congregation, and I really really think it's important for many reasons to um, to talk to uh, gay and lesbian trans people and to help them navigate their life and their faith. And uh, anyway, many many reasons that churches don't don't do that as well. So um, we got off of the interview last time, and I was already just buzzing with follow up questions, and then. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a sermon, a friend from church sent me a sermon, uh, and I was like, man, I got more questions. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to we're gonna dive in uh, to some questions. And so what I want to start with is, um, I don't think we got to this last week, but it's it's relevant to this conversation. Um, you know, your story, you discover you're gay, r remind listeners and, and me at what age that kind of was. And and then the question I have is why not even today as an adult maybe then back then but also then today why not be in a gay relationship why why are you single and why are you celibate kind of two different things but related yeah yeah so the timeline for me uh, it was probably puberty puberty probably came in strong around twelve uh, so that was probably around the time I started to be aware and at the time. Uh, I didn't so much think that I was gay as my first thought was, oh, I have been spared from heterosexual lust because I was mm -hmm. so prepared to, you know, everybody was bracing me to experience lust toward women. And I was like, the Lord has spared me because I love him so much. So yes. I was really jazzed about not being uh, <laughs> I was jazzed about not being straight, though I wouldn't have put it in those terms. Um, then then I realized that I that I, you know, had attraction to men instead. And then I was less jazzed. Um, the, I, I think for, for a number of years through middle school and high school and college, the reasons that I didn't pursue same-sex relationship were really just kind of reasons of inertia that, 
I I had sort of an, an inherited understanding of here's what scripture says and here's what marriage is. And I also had uh, sort of socioculturally an understanding that if I prayed enough and loved Jesus enough, I would eventually turn out to be straight. So I was kind of hanging out waiting to be straight. Mm-hmm. Um, this did not work out for me. Um, and we need not get into the, the dynamics there because then we would get well off topic. Um, but once I kind of reached the conclusion, oh, I think, I think this is probably going to be my experience of sexuality for my entire life. And I need to figure out what to do about that. Um, then, then I really started to go back and wrestle deeply with scripture. And, and the first thing I had to ask was, you know, is scripture even the right place from which to be deriving conclusions about how one ought to live one's Mm. life in a variety of ways, including the sexual. Um, And, and there again, I mean, uh, we could have a whole fascinating conversation about the the nature of scripture and the degree of authority it holds and how we reach that conclusion. Um, uh, But once I was once I was on board with that notion, um, uh, that uh, that going to scripture was the, the appropriate place to reach the conclusion about how I wanted to steward my sexuality. Um, uh, then I did really wrestle deeply with uh, some of the some of the arguments uh, that affirm same-sex marriage that come from Christians who do take scripture really seriously. Um, uh, and I found that that conversation was was complicated, certainly. Um, and we can I don't know how much you want to get into the get into the nitty gritty of the, the Greek and so forth. There's lots of interesting conversation to be had. Um, the, the conclusion I reached was that uh, even though the scriptural conversation could be complicated, that there was still like a best way of reading the text. Um, and that best way didn't seem to leave room for same-sex marriage for followers of Jesus. Um, and so it was because I found myself unconvinced by arguments in favor of a same-sex marriage for followers of Jesus because I did, wasn't particularly drawn to marrying a woman um, and because I felt like uh, of all the priorities in my life, seeking to follow Jesus as best I can understand him remains kind of the top priority I have. Then I was like, well, mm-hmm. if we if we put all these together, we come up with the conclusion that I will be uh, celibate. So certainly I didn't arrive at celibacy uh, with like this sort of like tripping delight, like, oh, I'm just so jazzed. This was what I dreamed of. This was not what I dreamed of. Um, I have discovered great delight in it along the way, um, but it's not what I planned. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how, how, how deeply enmeshed you want to get into uh, kind of the, the particulars of why I think uh, that same-sex marriage is, is not what scripture teaches for followers of Jesus. But I'm, I'm happy to, we can talk about Arsenakwaitai until the cows come home. <laughs> I think we'll get there. Let's come let's come back to that cuz I'm going to dive into some some interpretive stuff um some interpretive stuff here in a in a minute. Um so let's uh you know, you can answer this how, however however, you know, whatever way you want to go with it, but I I know that like okay, well, a couple things. Um you guys are doing great work at the Center for Faith Gender and sexuality? Did I get it right that time? Oh, did so I... close. Sexuality and gender. I did but it wrong again. You, it. Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to try to get it right anymore, but we'll just go with it. You're doing great work there, and you, you've helped a lot of churches figure out how to, um, how to, you know, kind of hold on to, like, uh, the, the DVD series Grace and Truth, I think it's called. It's just mm-hmm. this, this, like, here, we're holding on to truth of Scripture, but how do we have grace? And the church has been horrible at that towards... LGBTQ plus people. And, uh, but I think 
what I've seen, and I, I've done this myself. It's not it's not a bad thing. It's like we'll take uh, stories like yours and, uh, you know, Lori Krieg, um, Mixed Orientation Marriage, who's also been on the podcast and uh, Nate Collins is, you know, another uh, doing that and kind of be like, yo, so this is the option then for if you're if you're gay and a Christian and you want to hold a scripture kind of you could be celibate. Um, you can have a mixed orientation marriage. I did interview uh, Wesley Hill about uh, spiritual friendship and covenant friendships. And we we looked at uh, his his book. We, we did a little book club on the on the podcast about spiritual friendships. So we've talked about some of that stuff. But my, my question is this, like I've heard from gay Christians and gay non-Christians that may or maybe be former Christians, you know, those that have left their faith. And they'll say that that take is actually oppressive and hateful. Like the, and, and, and that word hate gets thrown around, I think a little too much here, but, but this idea of someone saying, okay, great. Like you're saying I can be gay. Like we talked about in our last interview, and that's a step up from what the church has traditionally done, but to tell someone they can't be in a in a gay relationship, a sexual relationship, uh, that that's that that ex feels oppressive and hateful, and so therefore, um, it's we, we're going to reject that, right? So, just I, I'm curious your uh, your take on that. Maybe it's an accusation that that's oppressive and hateful um, to teach that to uh, to to gay Christians as their you know as their option for discipleship. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose I would want to challenge the notion that uh, anyone saying, "Here's my understanding of what is the what is the best way of following Jesus," is necessarily telling somebody else, "Here's what you can and can't do," um, uh, because I I don't find it particularly constructive to go around telling other people like, "Look." you can't be in a same-sex sexual relationship and you can't be in this other kind of, again, there, there are so many relationships that we, we talked a little bit last week and I won't, I won't get into it again, lest, lest we awaken all the, uh, all the ghosts we tentatively laid to rest last week. Um, <laughs> we'll there are we'll need another do-over. We'll need a third yeah, exactly. encore. <laughs> there are all kinds of things um, that my, my understanding, my, my reading of scripture, as well as I can discern it, is that there's a whole bunch of stuff um, that that a whole bunch of people would like to do, and even some some Christians that I really respect in many of these conversations who feel like no, Coles, I think your reading of Scripture is wrong, um, and so I'm not telling them you can't do that. I'm simply saying, here's how I understand Jesus. I want us all to be deeply seeking to be obedient to Jesus, um, and so in the words of Isaiah, come, let us reason together. You know. Um, uh, if if we can if we can at least begin a conversation together and say our priority our desire together is to be uh, people seeking to follow Jesus to be people of the Word who trust Scripture to to lead us even into difficult places um, uh, and and from there you know then I, I would say yeah I mean my understanding is that if you if you find yourself attracted to the same sex. Uh, I think the the marital options uh, or the non-marital options available to you remain the same. And I think as well as I can discern it, those things are, you know, uh, lifelong union between male and female or celibate singleness. Um, and I don't think other options are God's best for you. That doesn't mean you can't do other things. Um, uh, 
I, I know, I know loads of people seeking imperfectly to follow Jesus as we are all seeking imperfectly to follow Jesus, um, who do, do all kinds of things with their sexual lives that I am convinced are not God's best for them. Um, and ultimately I think they and Jesus are going to need to sort that out. I have no, mm -hmm. I have no interest in just sort of like uh, plastering my own conscience onto anybody else's and trying to limit what they can do. And I think celibacy, if you feel forced into it, is a, is a really bad idea. Um, so when when people talk about like, uh, yeah, forced celibacy, I'm like, yeah, I agree. Like celibacy should be entered into out of a delighted love for Jesus. Um, and frankly, like lifelong union uh, in marriage between male and female should also, I think, be entered into um, out of love for Jesus. And anything that is entered into not out of love for Jesus will turn out to be a bad idea um, simply because the love for Jesus is lacking. Mm, yeah, no, that's uh, I, and and I want to throw in I, uh, uh, for listeners when you talked about um, people you know that are living you know lives different sexual lives different than um, I forget exactly how you just said it God's best or whatever, but just you're you're certainly talking about gay and straight people there, like we oh, talked about in the 100%. last one hundred percent. I yeah. think. I yeah. think the capacity the capacity to steward one's sexuality in ways that I don't think are God's best exists for all of us. Yeah. And that's that's really important uh you know just as we as we have the conversation. I want to take it a level deeper and um I was I was thinking about the term devil's advocate and I'm like where in the world did we get that phrase from? Like I'm the advocate of the devil. Like it's so bad. But I'm playing a little devil's advocate here. Like I'm his lawyer or something. I think that's what advocate means, right? So um, because I am a pastor, okay? So um, and 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 so I, I I'm pushing on this uh because it's so practical for me. And you know, you and Preston, you get to sit up in your ivory tower and make videos and speak to conferences. Meanwhile, us pastors, we have to actually have like discipleship conversations with a gay person that like wants to get baptized and they're, you know, in a relationship. And so, um, and I know you have some great pastoral papers and and I have loads of them that I'm planning to read this week because I'm preaching on this this Sunday. Um, but I, I let's, let's, let's take it to a, another layer practically. Um, let's say you're a pastor, Pastor Coles, and uh, you have a, we'll say, we'll call it a side A Christian. So this is a Christian uh, that's open and affirming or, you know, a gay, a gay Christian that's in a gay relationship. Um, and uh, I guess this person um, just, how do you, how do you, um, how do you disciple that person? Or maybe, uh, maybe a better question is it's, it's a non-Christian and they're um, I guess those are two different questions. So answer either one that you want or both at the same time, a non-Christian who's gay and they're in a relationship. Oh man, now I'm getting really complicated, right? Because they're like, what if they're married? Oh, okay. But they want to get baptized. And you're talking about baptism and repentance and all this stuff, right? And like, um, just how do you counsel them? How do, how do you, on a one-on-one -on -one level, um, as a pastor, uh, how do you how do you counsel somebody that's that's in that um that's in that situation? And and is is coming to you and saying, "Hey, I want Jesus. You know, I want Jesus in my life." Um, wh what's your what's your thoughts there? 
Yeah. Um, oh man, L let me let me say so many things. Uh, number one, I mean, as you so appropriately caveated at the beginning, I am not a pastor, um, <laughs> and uh, I I want to be cautious of the the 21st century impulse, especially the 21st century white male impulse to like answer all the questions for everyone. Yeah. Um, and so as speaking as someone who's not a pastor, I don't want to waltz in and be like, I have the answer for the pastors. Cause like <laughs> I, you and the Holy spirit can work on that. Um, uh, having said that, um, actually maybe there's, maybe there's a, a bit of a fruitful principle there too. Um, in recognizing that even those who are in the pastoral role, um, being in a pastoral role is is a call to to shepherd to help guide people. It's not precisely a call to to try to answer everyone's questions for them. Um, uh, even if we wish we could answer people's questions for them, like just speaking psychologically for a moment, uh, we happen to know that simply trying to impose answers onto people and being like, "Here's what you must believe. Ready, go," um, is not actually a way of fostering belief. Mm -hmm. um uh at best it's a way of creating a cult and at worst it's it's a well is that maybe that's not the best option um, that's that is one possible outcome of yeah. trying to impose belief without actually inviting uh the the process of uh learning and doubt even uh into uh the development of a person's convictions um so Here's here's my my understanding of what might be what might be fruitful for a, a pastor who's walking with somebody through these questions. Um, uh, one would be to recognize, uh, well, number one, as as you said, like recognize that these are very different conversations. If you're talking with somebody who is already seeking to be a follower of Jesus and somebody who's not, um, if I'm talking to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, then being really a, hyper focused on any aspect of like here's what i think your life ought to look like if you were following jesus is really silly because the whole point is that they're not following jesus like goodness knows if i were not trying to follow jesus my life would look wildly different in a number of ways and so really with those folks i'm not sure there's a lot of fruitful conversation to be had about specific aspects of here's how you could change your life if you follow Jesus. I think the fruitful conversation to have is, hey, there's this Jesus guy and he'll ruin your life, but in the best sense of the word. <laughs> um, and I, I think I think beyond that, there's, there's no need to get deep into the weeds about sexual ethics, uh, unless that's something that person is really interested in doing. That's a conversation I would want to let them uh, drive. Um, but yeah, the, the question is just, if you give up uh, in pursuit of Jesus, all the things that you thought you needed, um, then will it be worth it? Um, and, and if you, if you do give up everything and say, okay, Jesus, like it's all up to you, then which of those things will he restore to you and say, yeah, go ahead and do, uh, that thing that you were planning on. That's a great idea. And which things will he say, no, don't do that. But here's this other thing that's actually even better than the thing that you thought you needed. Um, and what's life going to look like if you engage in that radical exchange of everything you thought you needed, the best life you thought you could conjure up for yourself in exchange for the life that Jesus wants to give you? Um, I think when we're talking to folks who are still wrestling with the question of whether or not to follow Jesus, that's the that's the calculus we need to help them wrestle with is 
do we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is sufficiently that his answers will be worth trusting in our lives? Um, and, and I think for a lot of people who do identify as Christians or who are genuinely seeking to follow Jesus, um, a lot of us can still wrestle with that same tension of saying, yeah, cognitively, I kind of want to believe that Jesus's answers will always be better than mine. And yet there is this part of myself, of my flesh, that's still convinced that God can only possibly be good if he answers certain questions in the way that I want him to answer those questions. Um, I think I think a lot of us in our in our discipleship will will draw this this kind of imaginary line and say, okay, God, on this side of the line, everything is yours. But then there are a few things over here that I have said to myself, like, these are really like, you can't possibly be good if you cause me to change any of these things in a way that I don't want to. Um, and that that impulse toward the idolatry of saying, these are places in which I get to make my own decisions. These are places in which God must answer the following questions the way I want him to in order for him to be good. Um, it seems to me that that impulse toward idolatry also exists for all of us. Um, and I think it's I think it's possible that for some LGBTQ folks, the feeling that God must, God is required to give them an answer that uh, gives them allowance to pursue a same-sex marriage in order for him to be good. Um, I think that is one way of distorting our understanding of what obedience to Jesus looks like. Um, I don't think LGBTQ people have the market cornered on that kind of distortion of what obedience to Jesus looks like. And again, you can see our last roaming conversation um, for uh, just a few of the many ways in which uh, straight people might find themselves similarly trying to answer sexual questions with an attitude that says, no, God, like you really need to give me the following kinds of answers. Um, with respect to sexuality in order for you to be good, in order for you to be worth following. Um, so, so yeah, so, so at the, at the first level, we need to ask like, does this person even want to follow Jesus at the second level? Like to what degree, to what degree are we approaching conversations of sexuality with the willingness to let Jesus tell us anything? Um, because there's no point in arguing about sexual ethics if we're not even willing to hear any answer from God. Like if we arrive at the conversation and we already have a predetermined mm. answer that we must receive, then the whole conversation is just showboating. There's no point in actually trying to have like a meaningful conversation. Um, but if let's say we sort of work through those levels. Yes, uh, we're having a conversation among people who want to follow Jesus. And yes, we're all convinced that Jesus is actually allowed. He has permission to give us all kinds of answers, including radical ones that we don't want to hear. And then we arrive at discussions about, okay, so what does Jesus have to say? What does scripture have to say when it comes to the question of whether marriage is sort of definitionally understood for followers of Jesus as being between male and female, or whether there's also a possibility for same-sex marriage? Um, and at that point, I mean, at the, at the point that we're having that kind of high-level conversation, and number one, I love those conversations uh, when they happen among people who are all deeply committed to following where Jesus and the text of Scripture lead. I think, I think that's a really beautiful thing to have those conversations. I think it's a privilege. Um, and I would want to, I would want to distinguish um, in the way I understand my interactions with folks who disagree with me on those questions. Um, I would want to distinguish the, uh, 
we'll we'll sometimes talk about like we must uh call people to repentance you know exhort one another toward holiness and i absolutely concur and uh am in favor of that plan um but i want us to distinguish how different the call to repentance or the exhortation toward holiness looks when we are engaged in conversation and people have a shared understanding of uh, what is and is not sin versus when we're dealing with two different understandings hmm. of uh, sin. So, uh, so for instance, again, to take kind of a corollary issue that we discussed briefly last week um, uh, around remarriage after uh, at least some cases of divorce. And again, depending on, uh, you know, which kind of Protestant you are, or if you're Catholic or so forth, like there are going to be a lot of different Christian visions of when, if ever remarriage is the appropriate option for followers of Jesus after a divorce. Um, but I'm going to have a very different conversation with somebody, um, who's remarried after a divorce. Our conversation will look very different if, uh, if what they say to me is, well, you know, my conviction is that I actually, this is actually a sinful marriage that I'm in, but I'm doing it anyway. You know, um, mm. that's a very different conversation than somebody who says, I'm genuinely convinced I was willing to let the Bible lead me anywhere. And I'm genuinely convinced that this is an appropriate marriage for me to be in. And if my conviction is, well, I don't think it is. Um, I just want to recognize those are two different conversations to say, we both agree that what you're doing right now is not in line with Jesus. Um, then the call to repentance looks very different than if one of us says, yeah, I don't think what you're doing is in line with Jesus. And the other's like, well, I think I do. Um, and we're, and we're disagreeing textually. Um, uh, I, that's not, that's not to say how those two conversations ought to go. Yeah. It's simply to say that we need to understand them as being two fundamentally different kinds of conversations. Um, that, I've talked long enough. You should talk. No, some. that's, that's a good point. And I, I don't. And I think if I were, let's say I'm a conservative, you know, pastor, maybe listening to your, to what you just said, I'd be thinking, yeah, Greg, but the Bible says, right? Like I would just show that person the Bible says, uh, let's just say in this case, um, same sex, sex, you know, marriage or, or otherwise, like you can't, you can't be in it. It says right here. So if I'm going to baptize you, if you're going to truly, if you're truly repenting, like you got to repent of this because it says, you know, it says right there. And I, I think in reality, there is uh, a lot of complexity to this. And there, there, I, I think as we walk, as we walk this out in community, <clears throat> we, we, and there's all, there, there are a lot of these perspectives and there's a spectrum, I think on the perspectives where you go, I think at one point you're like, on the spectrum, it's you're, okay. You're, you've kind of fallen off the map at this point. Like, I don't think that has anything to do with scripture. Um, but you can be on the edge of the map too, and be like, okay, I could, I guess, I could see. You know, I could see where where you get that from scripture. It's not where I land. Um, but I, I think there's some. It's so tough, right? I, I used to think everything was just easy and black and white, right? And just like, um. But I, I think that's the reality, right? Like uh, it's two different people's perspective on scripture. But um, I, I don't know. I don't. You know. You don't even. Need, I don't. I don't. I don't need to ask it as a question. But do you have any thoughts or response on that listener who's like, Greg, just name it. Like right here, it says. You know, if it says adultery is wrong, and they're committing adultery, you just point to that verse in the Bible. So like, why is this any different? You know. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think what I would want to say is, uh, and and again, to be clear, I say this as somebody whose conviction is that the best reading of scripture is that uh, 
marriage is intended to be between male and female, among other things, and that all sex outside of uh, that covenant marriage, as well as some sexual acts that can occur within covenant marriage, are in fact uh, sin that they're that they're not God's best. Having having said that, um, I would I would caution somebody against using the well. The Bible is just so clear on this; it's just so plain uh, argument uh, without being deeply aware of the complexity of that conversation. Um, so e even just to give you like a like a, a thirty second view of that complexity, um, I mean uh, the so there are. Uh, there are two passages in Leviticus that uh, mention same-sex sexual activity. Uh, one of them describes it with the, the Hebrew word toeva, uh, which uh, means abomination. Um, and the word toeva, abomination, also gets used to describe like uh, some of the some of the dietary laws um, in Leviticus. So, um, so to say like, oh, a toeva thing is just so bad that you know it's always bad under the new covenant. Like, well, we see the dietary laws go away. Um, so. Um, is there is there an option to ask like well are we sure that this are we sure that this law sticks around and again though my conviction is it does I can understand why someone would ask that question um, some people will cite the the Sodom story in Genesis 18 and 19 and I'll just say this about the Sodom story like it's about people trying to gang rape angels and of all the things I have ever like dreamed of in in my sexual life like gang raping angels has never been on the list so if the conversation we're having is about like loving monogamous commitment um then you know genesis 18 and 19 don't seem dreadfully relevant to that dispute um uh you've got you've got three passages in uh the new testament uh and in first timothy and first corinthians um uh those passages largely hang well first corinthians also has the word uh malakos which uh means soft and there's all kinds of debate about what kind of soft is is at issue here, but it, we're somewhat speculative in how we interpret that word um, specific to that context. Arsenakoitai, which is the other Greek word that's used there, sometimes translated men who have sex with men, or sometimes those two words will get mashed together to be translated that way. Um, uh, it's a it's a compound word um, formed from parts that we know, but the word itself doesn't appear anywhere prior to Paul's use of it. Um, and so you could argue like, oh, you just like understand it by its by its component parts. Um, and so we know what it means. We don't really, I mean, imagine if we did that with English. If you took the English word butterfly, which is a compound word formed from like butter and fly, and you were like butterfly, it's like a winged dairy product, you know? Um, so, so it's just, it is linguistically irresponsible scholarship to pretend that we actually have full confidence what arsenakoitai means. Um, and so there's really thoughtful conversation to be had about why is that the word that Paul uses? How can we best understand what he seemed to mean by it? Um, I, and lastly, you've got the Romans 1 passage, which I'll just say, I mean, Romans 1 brings us to Romans 2 verse 1, which, uh, right, like, you therefore have no excuse, you who cast judgment on someone else, because at whatever point you judge someone else, you yourself stand condemned, because you who judge do the very same things. Um, uh, questions about uh, yeah, what's what's being referenced in Romans one? So, so you could take all 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 of those all of those perhaps six passages, um, uh, and you could at the very least raise really interesting questions about uh, what's intended by the text. To what degree are they 
equally relevant today? To what degree is the thing that they're referencing even related to uh, the, the kinds of conversations we're having right now about the possibility of same-sex marriage for followers of Jesus? Um, so again, uh, I, this is this is uh, not me outlining, you know, a comprehensive- you're, you're, you're being the devil's advocate now, see? The I, devil's I, advocate. I think I think there's deep value in us understanding that if we just say, oh man, the Bible's super clear. I don't know why anybody with half a brain is asking a question about mm, this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that I think does a disservice to the complexity of the text and it it dishonors people who uh, I think as people of deep conviction seeking to follow Jesus have arrived in a place that I, I genuinely believe is is the wrong answer. Again, I, I could I could make an argument uh, related to why I think that the reading that affirms same-sex marriage is not the best reading. Um, but I think if we don't understand why people have other readings uh, and we simply caricature that view as being a dismissal of what's in the text of scripture, um, that it seems to me is a disservice both to scripture and to people who hold that view. Yeah. That's helpful. I I love hearing you kind of go through that quickly uh, for me and and for listeners. And it's it's helpful to be because it is. I I hear, I hear it often. Just why is this even? Why are we talking about this? Just just say what it is and move on. You know, this is just just right there. It's so clear. And so that is helpful. I'm going to skip down to one of my questions about so interpretive stuff because you you started to get into it. Um, I was sent us a, a sermon by a guy in my church and the sermon is uh can open and affirming theological view a lot of com- really compelling stuff in there about um compassion and you know we'll, we'll get into some of that too um and stuff stuff that i agree with the the, co- the compassion part and and whatnot but um in in the sermon he talks about um he he, he kind of quickly at the end kind of did what you did with those six passages some overlap with some of the things that you just said and he had mentioned that the New Testament commands forbidding uh, homosexual sex, that they were in the context of male domineering and male abuse and would have been, uh, I don't remember exactly how he said it, I'm paraphrasing, but would have would have been likely having to do with children and prostitution. Mm-hmm. So, And I've heard that before where I've heard it said, well, it's more of like, like child molestation than... Mm-hmm same-sex, you know, uh, relationships. And, and then uh, tagged onto that, he said they didn't have a construct in the first century of monogamous homosexual unions, like marriages, like we have today. Their only construct was child abuse, prostitution, and so therefore that's what was condemned. Um, I'm wondering if you can take off the uh, devil's advocate hat and uh, just help me, uh, my listeners, help my friend that sent me the sermon, kind of navigate. Because honestly, you can start. You can start. Um, I don't. I want to be respectful as well. You can start hearing this stuff, and it's like that's what I want to hear. Like what he's saying mm-hmm. is what I want to hear. I, this would be easier if we could just be like, "Yo, yeah, absolutely, this would be fine." You know, gay marriage is great. Like the the kind of that all inclusive loving accepting kind of feel like mm. that and we'll get to that too like that feels kind of Jesusy even right like it's it just feels more loving at times and so that's a separate question we'll get to that one next but can you help us navigate um just some of the technical stuff that he's bringing up and is 
Um, we, I want to, I know you, I want to give respect to what he's saying and, and why yeah. people come to that conclusion, but is there any merit there or is this, uh, yeah. Cause yeah. Is there any merit to that? And, and why not? If not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me say two things, first of all, or actually no three things. Uh, number one, yes, there is some merit to that argument. So I want to acknowledge the merit of it. Uh, two, I think there are reasons that, uh, we, we shouldn't receive that as the only or the best understanding of what's going on uh, in those New Testament passages. Uh, and three, I actually think uh, the the specific, the, the clobber passages, as they are sometimes called, the passages that seem to specifically address same-sex sexual behavior, I actually think those texts are relatively unimportant to the conversation about whether marriage for followers of Jesus is between male and female. I think there are much more central texts to that conversation. Um, and it seems to me that uh, passages like um, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy, or, or even the, the Romans 1 passage, seem to me uh, simply sort of peripheral supports of that view, uh, rather than being sort of the, mm. the center of the view on which the argument hangs. Um, uh, but so, so first of all, uh, Yes, um, uh, it is important to know that uh, same-sex sexual activity uh, in, say, the first century um, and sort of thereabouts um, does seem to be uh, largely, if not exclusively, uh, existing around certain kinds of uh, power differentials, right? Um, uh, 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 male owners and their male slaves, for instance, or older men and young boys um, in relationships that were called uh, pederasty is the is the is the name for it, um, and it's it's quite a common thing in in Greek society around that time, um, and so uh, yeah, the the question of whether whether there were any uh, sort of like mutual loving monogamous same-sex relationships and whether those things were ever understood in kind of a, a quasi-marital way. Um, that, is a, that is a question around which uh, scholars have a great deal of dispute. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm not the best classicist, so I'm not the best person to walk you through that dispute. Um, uh, I will say sort of one thing in favor of both sides. One is there do seem to be at least some literary references um, uh, that involve what appears like kind of a, a, a mutualistic relationship, especially among women. I mean, if you read the love mm -hmm. poetry of Sappho, um, uh, which is, yeah, very clearly like erotic same-sex poetry, um, that doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be motivated by power differential. Um, and again, the power differential dynamics are much more common in male-male relationships than they are in female-female relationships. Um, uh, but on the other hand, even though we do see some references that look very much like they could be a reflection of uh, a, a mutual and loving consensual monogamous kind of relationship, um, it's unclear and it's very hard to make clear um, how much broad social understanding awareness of those kinds of relationships there was um, right. Nobody was tweeting at the time, um, so we we don't have a sense of like who exactly was receiving all these texts. And for instance, how much would Paul and or his his readers um, in various epistles have been aware of these things? On those points, we are speculating, and we can make better or worse speculations. We can be better or worse historians of language, of text, of society. Um, 
but we are speculating regardless because we don't have like the cold hard facts of precise we, we don't have a copy of paul's li uh, library to double check what he was reading um uh so so yeah i think those are those are things we should be aware of um that complicate our reading um i'm i am uncomfortable with asserting that that Clearly, you know, the thing that arsenokoitai, for instance, means in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy um, is necessarily just uh, pederastic relationships, for instance, which is a claim you'll hear a lot of folks making from the same-sex marriage affirming side. Um, is there a Greek word for that? I'm not a Greek scholar. Like, is there a Greek yes. word for pet pedero, whatever? And yeah. so wouldn't Paul have just used that if that's if that was like the only thing that he was talking about? Well, I mean that. So, so that's that's an argument that I'm unwilling to make categorically okay. on the other yeah. side. Okay. Um, that Paul necessarily would have used the more technical, specific word okay. for that behavior. Yes, th that word does exist. There, there are actually a couple different words that he could have used instead. And so, some people on the not affirming same-sex marriage side of the conversation will say like, well, he definitely would have used those other words. And so definitely okay. because he used this one, that definitely kind of means, and I just think people are ways. too definite about everything. Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah, need like, everybody to chill out. <laughs> right. Well, it's both sides are speculating essentially, and then creating like some pretty, some pretty, you know, firm yeah. dogmatic statements based on a speculation. So it does. I yeah. will say the existence of those other words does raise the question, why would Paul bother coining a new word if words were available to him? And again, we don't even know for sure that he coined the word. Maybe it existed in spoken language or in other written texts that have since been destroyed and we don't have access to them. Um, but he see, he appears from the text we have, he appears to coin this new word. And so while it's possible he would give us a different word, even though what he's really talking about is something there are already words for, right? Like I could use a new word talking with you, even though I had other words available to me. I was just like, I'm just being spicy, you know? Um, uh, but here, here's here's what I'll say about the word arsenokwetai. So arsenokwetai, I mentioned earlier that it's a compound word, meaning it's formed from two different words. Um, arsene, which means male, koiti, which means bed, and sometimes is like a euphemism uh, for sexual activity. Um, and so this word kind of crams these two words together, arsena, koitai. Um, uh, koitis is the singular, koitai is the plural, but I'm assuming many of our listeners do not care about the distinction. Um, so um, if we have to guess, like, what is Paul up to with this apparently new word that he's coining? It's really worth noting uh, that the Septuagint, so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, which is being used around the time of Jesus and Paul. Um, and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of uh, Leviticus 18 um, uh, and the Leviticus 20 passage as well, um, uh, we see these two Greek words, arsene and koiti, um, used uh, in the in the passages that prohibit uh, male same-sex sexual activity uh, in, in Leviticus. Um, okay. Arsene shall not koiti with arsene. Um, uh, and and so it's it's interest it's it's interesting to note that the Greek language at this time has other words for maleness it has other words for sexual activity but Paul just so happens to take the words that are used in this Leviticus passage um, in this kind of reaffirmation um, uh, and so it seems if we have to speculate as we do if we have to speculate about what Paul is doing in apparently coining this new word 
it seems likely. I mean, we know we know that people in this time are very familiar with uh, with the Septuagint and, and you know with the Torah, with the prophets. They're very familiar with these texts, um, and they're often looking for intertextual moments. Um, uh, there were so many moments where Paul brings in these gestures of what has happened uh, in Old Testament literature. Um, and so this seems like perhaps another moment where Paul is sort of casting back, hey, you remember that thing we talked about back in Leviticus? Let me mention it here as well. Um, that, it seems to me, is probably the best guess we can make of what Paul means. But again, that's not a slam dunk. It would be incredibly irresponsible to suggest that that's like the definitive reading mm -hmm. of what Paul's up to with the word arsenakotai. Um, so anyway, yeah, so so there's reason to acknowledge like this is a good point. Those are some good pushbacks. There's also reason to say, I don't think those are definitive pushbacks. I, I think these texts still do maybe incline in, in the direction of being prohibitions of same-sex sexual activity, not just pederasty or uh, master-slave relationships, but activity more broadly. And then finally, beyond all that, I would just want to point out, I don't think the conversation ultimately hangs on the clobber passages. Um, I think there are more fundamental things at play. Yeah, if you can just briefly, what would you say were, would be the uh, the primary um, the, the the primary passages for you, or the primary themes for you that would that you would that you, you're mentioning? Bless you for asking me to do it briefly, ah. recognizing as I trust you have that loquacity is a problem of mine. You're great. Loquacity, I love loquacity. it. Uh, I should know how to pronounce that word. Um, um, okay. Yes. Um, so uh, yeah. In in brief, here here are a few of the things that I find most relevant. Um, one is, uh, so we see in the early chapters of Genesis, um, th this creation of, of male and female mm -hmm. in the image of God, right? A wonderfully radical thing um, in, in the time at which that text is, is written and pervade to suggest that male and female are equally and differently reflective of the image of God. Um, uh, and uh, in, in Genesis 2, this creation of male and female seems in some way to be tied to the logic of marriage, right? The text says, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Um, it's notable too, to me, that uh, that Jesus uh, in Matthew 19, among others, answering a question about divorce, um, he gestures back to, um, not just to Genesis 2, which mentions marriage, but he actually gestures to Genesis 1, haven't you read that in the beginning, the creator created them male mm. and female Yeah. Um, and said, um, it seems to me scripturally that there's something beautifully, almost like mystically true about marriage, um, that in the bringing together of male and female, we see these two, right, uh, equally, uniquely, and differently reflective of the image of God kinds of beings coming together. And so there's something that marriage images of the fullness of who God is um, that if we only had, uh, if we only had two males or two females, we would be missing something of the fullness of the image of God, um, uh, in the same way. And I'm going to make a comparison here that will be very unpopular for your, uh, complementarian listeners, but let's hope we have many mutualists and or egalitarians on the call. Um, it seems to me that we're also missing something. If you have say an elder board comprised only of men, um, uh, because, among other things, because we see in Genesis 1 
um, that to see the image of God, the fullness of what God looks like in flesh among his people uh, is reflected in both male and female. And so if you have a church leadership structure that is sort of male only at some level, it seems to me that we miss something significant about the fullness of who God is. Um, so it's notable to me that Jesus seems to cast back to that that logic uh, in the yeah. way that he frames marriage. And of course, um, I mean, the, the pushback to that uh, from the same-sex marriage affirming side would be to say like, well, Jesus is answering a question about divorce. So like, he's not, he's not talking about same-sex marriage. And I agree, like he wasn't asked a question about same-sex marriage. Um, and so we shouldn't make the text run on all fours and do things that it wasn't meant to do. Um, however, it's significant to me to ask, what uh what did jesus what did jesus mean to communicate to somebody like me mm-hmm. um when jesus says things like uh hey you want to talk about marriage haven't you heard that in the beginning god created them male and female um mm-hmm. or when jesus prohibits pornea which is a greek word for sexual immorality um and uh and sort of gestures broadly to like the the hebraic understanding of what was sexual immorality at that time, which included a whole bunch of stuff. Um, And among that whole bunch of stuff was sexual activity between people of the same sex. Um, Mm -hmm. For Jesus to say that and to know that his hearers would hear him prohibiting, among other things, same-sex sexual behavior, I then have to wrestle as a gay person. I have to see that in the text and ask, what was Jesus' intention in doing that as concerns people like me? Did he, was he A, just like totally blissfully unaware that there were gay people in the world? And so now Jesus is up in heaven being like, ah, oh, bummer, you know, mm. like I should have said something different so that, you know, LGBTQ folks would know they could go ahead and marry people of the same sex, but I didn't. And I confused my whole audience, you know, um, and, you know, uh, there, I, I, there were probably some same sex attracted people uh, in Jesus' first century audience, um, like, was he not aware? Did he just, did he just miss them? Um, did he, did he know that those people existed and think to himself like, well, yeah, this is going to communicate to my audience that they shouldn't pursue same-sex sexual behavior, but like, eh, that's not my biggest priority right now. Like, my big priority is other things. Um, and that, it seems to me, is, is almost worse it seems so unlike the character of Jesus, who's so interested in naming the reality of people on the margins of bringing those people um, into the conversation, into the family of God. He just he just seems so interested in naming uh, naming the needs and inviting in uh, all kinds of different people that the idea that I'm like intentionally forgotten by Jesus in the text of scripture seems to me not at all in keeping with the character of Jesus. Mm. Um, and, and so if, if I, if I read, if I read scripture and specifically, if I read the life of Jesus and ask the question, not how do I get myself out of this text? Like, how do I prove that at every point, maybe the Bible talked about same-sex marriage, it didn't really mean to. And so I'm just not in there. What a bummer. Well, yeah. I can figure out, you know, um, but if I instead ask, okay, Jesus being purposeful and naming all kinds of people, like what does he say that's relevant to somebody with my experience? And then I see the way that Jesus speaks about marriage as fitting within an understanding of being reflective of the creative intention of both male and female reflecting the image of God. And I see Jesus saying to his followers, hey, that pornea thing, um, 
all that stuff you understand to be sexual immorality, you're right about that. And actually also not just sexual behavior, but even what you do with your mind, um, uh, right? Jesus isn't saying, ah, yeah, forget about sexual behavior. Like, uh, go for it. You know, yeah, Jesus yeah, yeah. is actually saying even more, like you were just told, don't do the behavior. Now I'm telling you like steward your mind as well as your body, um, uh, to see, I mean, um, yeah, I made the comparison earlier between the same-sex sexual prohibition in Leviticus uh, and the dietary laws, because, you know, uh, both of them have the word toeva at one point applied to them. Um, it seems significant to me that, like, there's a moment in the New Testament where, you know, a sheet is lowered down to Peter and all the animals right. are on it, and the Lord says, take and eat. There's no equivalent moment where, like, a naked man is lowered down on a sheet and the Lord is like, go for it, Peter. You know, like, <laughs> it doesn't happen. And so I think... Uh... I, uh, that, yeah, if that, if that doesn't get this podcast canceled, I don't know what will. Um, uh, I think, I think we need to be uh, thoughtful and reflective in asking how does sort of the whole scope of scripture seem uh, to invoke and then, to, and then to continue to take up this question of sexual ethics, sexual stewardship. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that there is kind of a, a really consistent and continuous theme Um with respect to sexual stewardship, um, and that the notion that sex belongs exclusively within the context of marriage between male and female um, is sort of reinforced throughout. Um, and so in that sense, texts uh, like the so-called clobber passages, um, they're, they're not, they're not, the, they're not the, the core of that view. They're simply like these individual and even unnecessary moments that reflect what is already broadly true mm -hmm. of the narrative of scripture. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm giving myself a gold star sticker uh, because I said some of that in my sermon on this last Sunday. So oh, look at you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really helpful. All right. So this leads kind of to my, it's my last question, uh, but it's, it's maybe the most important one uh, for, for everything that we've been talking about. And really, honestly, I feel like what I'm trying to accomplish in this sermon series, and it feels impossible. Uh, and so how does a church love LGBTQ plus people, including sexually active? Okay, so because uh, again, and, and I, only, I, I say that because it's like, well, Greg, you know, you're celibate, you know, you can I'm come so on easy to love. What can yeah, I right? say? <laughs> uh, even though we talked about it in last episode, the, the do over episode, uh, that like, I get fear that I get very frustrated that like there's churches that are, that, you know, you couldn't be a pastor at or something like that's just so ridiculous. Uh, but that's why I say like, okay, how does a church, uh, that love LGBTQ people that are sexually active included in that, uh, really well, like how do we really love them well, including inviting them to be a part of the church, uh, to, that, you know, attending the church, being a part of the church, just like there's a place for you here, and still hold to a traditional view of sex within marriage between a man and a woman. And often, again, kind of like the question I, I asked at the beginning, as soon as you mentioned that, well, we, you know, we believe that, you know, the Bibles, and maybe it maybe it's a better way to phrase that than traditional. I don't know. The biblical traditional view of sex uh, within marriage between a man and a woman, people immediately say, Well, you that's not loving. You can't, you can't love, you know, you can't love um LGBTQ plus people then. And so uh help me and and listeners kind of navigate that. How 
how is that possible to do that? Um, maybe practically. Yeah. Um, I mean, so many things come to mind. Um, one is, I think, I think it's remarkably important um, to to be clear, uh, both internally, you know, among among your leaders and so forth, um, and in the ways that you're able to communicate that more broadly, um, to have a clear sense of uh, what do we believe, and I hope. Again, we've said this a lot today, um, but I hope that what you believe is significant about sexual ethics is not just stuff related to same-sex sexual ethics, because if the only sexual ethics you think are really important to teach on are same-sex sexual ethics, then I just feel like what a major bummer that you're not also um, teaching sexual ethics that are relevant to a much larger proportion of your population. Um, uh, so, so. I think I think it's good to know what you believe about those things, um, uh, and and to not have sexual ethics be the only the only things that are on that list of like here's here's the here's the stuff we hold to be important and want to be thoughtful in teaching about. Um, uh, when you when you know where your church stands um, on some of those questions, um, then I think it, it becomes necessary to ask: um, to what degree are we saying? A, this is a place where here's what we'll teach, and we uh, love everybody to be here regardless of whether or not they agree, versus um, you need to agree in order to feel some degree of, you know, community belonging, or you'll always be kind of on the fringes and we'll look at you askance if you disagree. Um, I'm. Uh, it makes me think of how churches will treat people who are dealing with really significant doubt. Um, uh, you know, for instance, uh, if, if I show up at a church and say like, guys, I'm really wrestling with like, I don't know if God exists. Um, you know, on the one hand, I hope that the church is not like, you know, it's a really great question. We're actually not sure as a church, whether God exists or not either. We haven't decided, but like, so, you know, come on in and flip a coin with us. We'll see. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, like I, I would also really hope that church communities are places where when people are like, I'm struggling with whether or not God exists, that we could be like, hey, great. This is the right place for you to be when you're struggling with that. Um, uh, this is not a place just for people who have already decided that they're totally convinced at all times. Um, I, when it comes to doubt, generally, I take sort of the uh, um, the Frederick Beekner approach to things. Um, uh, Beekner says something like, uh, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Um, and I love that. I just think like, yeah, like let us, let us be people whose faith is motivated by a healthy degree of doubt. Um, it seems to me that people need to be able to, to wrestle well with all kinds of difficult questions. Uh, and if our churches are not places where they can wrestle well, then they will leave our church to wrestle elsewhere. Um, so I would, I would rather see the church be a place that says, hey, yeah, here's, here's what we think. And also, if you don't think that, like, come on in. Right. Um, uh, I, I think when it, when it comes to the question of, because, yeah, because again, all, that question and so many others, I would rather have people uh, navigate that question within the context of being, being loved uh, by community, um, than have them feel like they need to go venture off and, you know, Rumspringer or something in order to, um, 
in order to sort out what they believe. Um, the question of uh, uh, like what uh, what kinds of roles within the church are available to folks who disagree on various issues, I think that's a question that can come up a lot. Um, like, hey, uh, if I'm if I'm at your church and you guys uh, believe that you know. God's God's best for marriage is that it be between male and female, um, and I am in or interested in pursuing a, a same-sex marriage. Like, um, what what kinds of participation in community are available to me? Um, are there are there roles, a few roles, many roles um, that I wouldn't be able to participate in in the life of the church? Um, and I think it's good for a church to have thought through that and be able to answer that question when people ask. Um, uh, and, uh, I won't, I won't tell you what the answer to those questions should be. Uh, I will, however, harp for the 1400th time on consistency. Um, mm -hmm. uh, if you're, if, yeah, if, if you're telling me that, that people who disagree with your church around same-sex sexual ethics, um, are not, uh, invited into certain kinds of roles, um, then don't tell me that people who disagree around opposite sex sexual ethics are totally just whatever, no problem. Um, because that, it seems to me, is indicative of the fact that it's not really that you care that your leaders be on the same page about sexual ethics. You're just not interested in having gay people in leadership, um, uh, or at least not sexually active gay people. Again, I could get away with it because, you know, everyone loves me, he said, tongue in cheek. <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, so wherever wherever you say like, yeah, there are certain kinds of leadership roles, service roles, whatever, um, where people need to be in alignment with our church's vision around sexual ethics, um, make it the whole vision of sexual ethics um, and be able to communicate that clearly. And I think knowing that you're not going to be the right church for everyone. Um, I think if we pretend that we are the best place for everyone to be, then that mm. probably stands to hurt more people than it helps. Um, uh, some of the best conversations that I've had with uh, folks who are uh, side A, again, who are you know uh, Christian and uh, understanding uh, same-sex marriage to be an option for followers of Jesus, um, when they've asked me like, okay, so you're part of a church, you know, like in, in various churches that I've been at over the years, uh, like, should I come? Like, are they gay friendly? You know, they'll ask the question a lot of ways. Um, and I find it much better instead of being like, yeah, totally 100%. I, I find it much more helpful to try to give them a really realistic sense of what they'll experience. And so what I'll mm. say is typically something like, well, <laughs> our community includes people who hold a variety of views on this subject. And so depending on who you talk to, who you sit next to on a Sunday morning, um, you could find yourself warmly welcomed by somebody who's really excited to like scout out your next, you know, boyfriend, uh, or you could find <laughs> yourself um, sitting next to uh, somebody who like the very fact that you use the word gay to describe your attraction to the same sex will be like a theological crisis for them. Like mm -hmm. any of those things could happen. So, you know, you should know that, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and I might say something like, hey, like, um, at the like at the leadership level, I know that folks would be delighted that you're here. Um, you know, you you'll probably want to know that the church does you know talk about sex sometimes. We don't talk about it all the time, but it comes up occasionally. And when it does, like here's here's what our church understands to be true in that regard. Um, you know, we're not a we're not a community where uh, our pastors performing same sex marriages. Um, uh, but you know, and maybe I'll say 
Um, but you know, we do have people in the community who are in same-sex marriages and and are are loved within that context. Um, and uh, so, you know, you may experience some tension around that as as you're with us. We'd love to have you, but if if that's not the kind of uh, experience that you want to have. I don't want to lie to you and tell you that's what you, you would experience here. Um, so I think simply being able to talk openly about how we function as a community, what our, what our desire is, um, not to, not to do what is often called the, the bait and switch where you pretend that your church right. is like a church that affirms same-sex marriage and act like that's the case until it comes up until somebody says, Hey, can I lead worship? And you're like, Oh, actually, no. Um, Right, like if if that's if that's a if that's a boundary that you have that worship leaders at your church need to you know be in alignment with your church's understanding of sexual ethics, then that should be a thing that you're willing to say openly. Um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure there there are there are more dynamics that that could be uh, useful in that regard, but but those are a few preliminary thoughts at any rate. Yeah, yeah, and. I was thinking about the the friendly idea, right? Like your friend who said, are they gay friendly? You know, and then the person you might sit by this person and they they might not know what to do with you. And I think at the very least, um, how how I want to. I mean, yeah, you know, I guess I'm I'm processing this as I go, but I want to help listeners. And I I will say this: I'm I'm surprised by the um, uh, specifics conversations I've had recently where Christians uh, like they don't they're like, I'm allowed to be friendly to like a trans person or like a gay person. I'm like, I mean, obviously I'm saying this a little bit, like I'm on the podcast right now. So I'm not, I don't behave very well when I'm on the podcast. I admit. Uh, you and I have that in common. So I hope nobody at my church listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, yes, like you, why are we even questioning? Like there's nobody on the planet that you shouldn't be friendly to like mm -hmm. loving to just you know i mean just we're mm. that's jesus right like we're just so i i want to help christians understand yeah. that like if you're sitting in your pew or your chair at church and a gay couple sits down next to you say hi to them like shake their hands tell them how glad you are they are there like at, who cares about anything else at that point like right and so i think that's really important to keep in mind both for maybe other pastors listening or church leaders, it's like, yeah, we don't need to dive into the deep end of like <laughs> theology. And do you want to, you know, like be our worship leader or something? It's like you are a human and you are welcome here, and mm -hmm. we love you. We L-O-V-E you, like love, love you. And as we talk, and if you feel comfortable, like, yeah, we're gonna learn to, I mean, we're we, we're not going to, we may not agree on everything. I don't know how it's even going to pan out. It's just like this muddy mixture of like, you know, we're just trying to figure it out as we go, but that part of it should be as, as foundational, fundamental knee jerk reaction to, to anybody. But I, I do think that's a sad, uh, mm -hmm. I guess, indictment on the way particularly conservative Christians have been taught to, to respond to gay people, trans people. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, so that's a starting point, you know, that's a starting point. Now I'll, I'll give the other side um, on the more, the more negative side. I think I've thought of this as a pastor and I, and I, I can just be vulnerable here and, and, and say it like, there's the thought of like, man, well, if I, if I had too many kind of gay couples in my church, then people are going to come in and they're going to think like we have open and affirming theology and we don't. And I'd be like, 
what are you gonna do every 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 day during announcements every Sunday be like yo yo welcome you know we got a potluck today and by the way we're not open and affirming but you know we love y'all still you know like this there's like that that fear that I have of and and again you be like why would you care why would you care if people think about your theology because I want people to know that we value scripture mm-hmm. like that's actually a foundational thing for us as a church that not all churches do value you know mm-hmm. scripture so um let's let's uh let's go there for for a minute these are kind of like my sub questions to my last question um just what give me your advice just to me as pastor like I've um and right now we don't we don't have any you know gay couples in our church we've had some visit uh and but the series I'm doing I'm pretty clear I'm like we want you here I think that's part of being loving I think it's part of being the church um but there's that there's that thought of um, well, what if, you know, and, and, uh, I think maybe back to what you ended the podcast with last time, it's like, yeah, Noah, you're going to lose people get over it. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, so I'm going to end there. That's my last question though. Just, um, for, for that kind of, that kind of fear that a, a pastor, like I would have of, of, well, you know, what if, what if that's what our congregation does looking <laughs> like, you know, uh, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the one of the delightful and perhaps disheartening things uh, that we see in the ministry of Jesus um, is that as he is amply clear about his ethical vision for humankind, um, he's also so good at inviting in all kinds of people who the religious leaders of the day perceive as scandalous that he gains this reputation among religious people as being like oh, that guy, he's kind of like a drunkard, right? Like he hangs out with all the sinners. That seems sketch. Um, uh, And so I think if, (laughs) it seems to me that to accrue that kind of reputation um, doesn't necessarily mean we're doing anything incorrectly. Um, uh, Now, if we accrue that kind of reputation and it's because we never managed to give any inclination that Jesus calls us to costly things, and that, and that all of us in various ways um, may be called to look at our lives, to look at our stewardship of our bodies and our stewardship of our time and our stewardship of our money and say, oh, I am falling short of the vision that Jesus has cast for humanity. Um, and I'm, I'm called to live more like his disciple today than I did yesterday. Um, I think that invitation should be really uncomfortable. I think the invitation to follow Jesus radically should be so uncomfortable that lots of people leave because they don't want to, because that also happened to Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think our our welcome of people should be so wide-armed that lots of people come and see the society we keep and think, well, this seems like a person who's not interested in holiness because they judge by company because that also happened to Jesus. Right. Um, and so I hope that we are as successful at Jesus as driving people at driving people away on both sides of that coin. Um, <laughs> that we're uh. that we're so good at talking about the cost of obedience that people leave because they don't want to do it. And we're so good at talking about the radical inclusivity of the gospel mm. that people leave because they don't want to include that radically. You're a great church growth expert. You know, you should go into that for your career. So writing some you books. may recall, as I said earlier in the podcast, <laughs> I am not a pastor. Um, and there's a certain convenience about having no fear that my salary will be impacted by the number of people who walk out the door. Um, 
but yes. Oh, it's so good. It's so true. I love it. I love it. Well, Greg, man, thanks so much for coming back on uh, for the encore. This has been super good and super helpful. Uh, thank you. Ah, oh, the delight has been mine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for boldly risking yet a, yet another do over worthy podcast. That's right. <laughs> All right, welcome back. I'll be honest, I don't know how to close, now that we're not doing Noah's rant at the end of each episode, I don't know how to close these out. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope it really challenged you uh, to, you know, I, I just hope it challenged you. I think I think it challenged you. Um, the, the, the ultimate goal is, and, and, as we, there's multiple goals here, but, but one of them is that last question for Greg. How, how do we genuinely love gay and trans people, which by the way, we didn't get into this, but just the, the level of rejection gay and trans people have felt by the church, the, the suicide rates are off the charts, um, the attempted suicide rates, the amount of people leaving the church. And it, it can feel like, you know, the only way, the only way to be loving, the only way to, uh, to do that and to prevent, you know, those things from happening is to become what, what we call open and affirming in theology. You know, the only way to do that would be to be, uh, as, as Greg said it better than me, uh, you know, that, 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 that same-sex marriage is an okay part of following Jesus. And so a lot of churches are switching over to that because, uh, <clears throat> because it's, it feels like the only loving and, you know, compassionate response. And in doing so, you know, I, I'm, and, and Greg, Greg said it multiple times. And for me, uh, I just, you know the Bible is, while it's while it's nuanced and it's complex, uh, it is God's word. It is authoritative, and and we we submit ourselves to it. And and I mean, I couldn't lead a church without the Bible. I just <laughs> at that for me, and this is just me talking. I'm about about um, Mosaic Church, and I I can't lead a church without the Bible. It's at some point you're just getting up there giving your own your own thoughts. And that's not, that's not what we gathered for. We gathered here God's thoughts uh, in scripture via the Holy Spirit. And, you know, you got a flavor of that today of some of the complexity that's there, but, but that truth is still there. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's equally, it's, it's very important to be loving and compassionate because the Bible commands us to. And it's, it's also very important to, um, follow the Bible. And that's, that's why we do this podcast. It's why there's, you know, I love the Bible project, for example, because it's just, they're trying to help people understand the Bible. It's the Bible's not just really easy to understand little book. Uh, so anyway, I do welcome your feedback. As I mentioned in the intro, we're going to do that through Patreon now. And we are trying to get enough Patreon supporters to keep going with the show. Uh, and so Patreon, I don't think I mentioned this before, but go to patreon.com slash Noah Philippiak, and that's how you can become a supporter, and it's always in the show notes uh, of the show. Uh, other things to look forward to, uh, subscribe, and you'll get little five-minute flips sent to you. That's free bonus content. You'll be getting Noah's rant sent to you uh, as well, and you can always go over to YouTube. Just type in the flip side uh, with Noah Philippiak, and you'll find our YouTube channel, and it's in the show notes if you want to watch instead of listen. Uh, to all of our long form and Noah's rant episodes. Thank you so much for listening. 
I will see you next time on The Flip Side. The Flip Side with Noah Philippian is a Beyond Ministries production. Copyright Noah Philippiak. www.noahphilippiak.com Theme music by Kyle Lake at Kalik Music. Used with permission. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. It's time to bring me closer. There's no purgatory because you're in or you're out. When you see them in the clouds, then you know it's going down. Raise them, raise them, raise them. They've been sleeping for some ages. Now all God's babies so confused by this hatred. Poor pit preachers shouldn't aim to be A-list. Money probably long, but short is with your days. And you ever-